Welcome to the very first episode of Curious Objects and the Stories Behind Them, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm your host, Ben Miller, and today I'm talking with a New York City dealer named Michael Pashby. Michael handles superb English furniture, but we're speaking about a piece with humble connotations, a Windsor chair made by a company that I've come to think of as the IKEA of the 18th century. I don't mean the quality, but their vertical integration of materials, manufacturing, and distribution. So it's a really interesting slice of history. And Michael is a true connoisseur, and he taught me a lot I didn't know about the complexity of this seemingly simple form. If you'd like to see a picture of the chair, I encourage you to visit themagazineantiques.com, where you'll find images and links. Now, this is a new podcast, and I'm counting on your feedback to make it better. So if you have suggestions for guests, or comments on an episode, or anything else you'd like to say, please send an email to podcast at themagazineantiques.com. I will read your email, and I will do my best to respond. I really appreciate it. Finally, it will really help me to get the word out and share stories like this with more people if you leave a rating on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen. Okay, let's get started. Michael Bashby, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. We are here to talk about a chair. We are, and it's a very simple chair, and it's commonly called a, a Windsor chair. And it's a very simple one, but it has a very interesting story behind it. And for the benefit of our listeners who unfortunately can't see us through this microphone, could you give a physical description of that chair? Well, it's what one would normally understand as a Windsor chair. It's got four legs, obviously, but these are particularly well-splayed legs, so it gives it uh, stability. It has spindles to the back, a hooped back, a curved arm, a flat curved seat, um, shaped seat, and it's got a very interesting stretcher to the base, which is a very shallow curve to the stretcher with supports going to the rear legs. And all of the legs have got very, very fine uh, turning to them. So it's, it's a standard Windsor chair. Windsor chair is a very interesting thing because most of them are not from Windsor. This type of chair was made in the area of the Thames Valley. The market town of the Thames Valley was Windsor. And chairs were moved to other parts of the country through the market town. And because it was on the Thames, they could be shipped to any part of London or elsewhere in the country. So the name Windsor actually relates to their commercial distribution rather than the actual point of origin. And I think people at the time said, oh, the chairs from Windsor. And over time, chairs which were made in Wales or in the north of England all became known because of the distinctive look of these chairs. They all became known as Windsor chairs. But this one is made of indigenous woods, is made of beech, ash, primarily of ash, and ash was a very good wood to be steamed and turned. And the seat is, interestingly, is of sycamore, which would indicate that the chair actually had been painted at some stage. Ah. Because if it was a much higher quality piece, it would have either been elm to the seat or cherry, um, something that was more expensive. Now, what's interesting about this chair is it's made by Gillows. Right. And this is a firm that uh, you collect a variety of objects from, is that right? Correct. I mean, I, I, some years ago, I became interested in Gillows because I'd seen so much of their furniture, and it was of such high quality, and yet no one really knew or understood them. They weren't a household name as the Chippendale, uh, Sheraton, uh, Mayhew and Inc. Any of those major makers were. 
And I, I was looking into it. Why doesn't this company have more of a profile? You know, it's, it's really quite interesting. First is because they were very, very protective of the things that they made. And other companies, well, like Chippendale, for instance, published many books of his designs. Sure, books that are still used by carpenters today. Books that are still used. And most of the furniture makers who are so well-known today are well-known because of their publications. Gillow's never published a thing. And was that to protect their trade secrets, do you think? Or? I think it was. I mean, they're a fascinating company. When I started to look into them, they were a company that started around 1730. And it was interesting because they were Catholics. Gillow's family were Catholics. And if you remember back in the... If you remember. If you think back to those times... I remember, of course. Of course you do. You know, Catholics were not the most popular people in England. There was the insurrections, sure. trying to put the Jacobites back on the throne. So they weren't the most popular people in, in England. To say the least. To say the least. However, they were from the north of England, up in Lancaster, in the way north of England. And they did have a following of the Catholic nobility and the Catholic uh, gentry in the north of England. And they made a very good business, being patronized by fellow Catholics. And they also developed what I would say was probably one of the first totally integrated multinational companies in producing their furniture. Really? They bought the woods in uh, South America for the fine furniture they were using. They owned the ships that went out to harvest the, the woods in South America. They brought them back. They had designers on their staff. They had the factories making the furniture. They had decorators and upholsterers. They controlled every part of the installation of the furniture. We're talking about a very large operation then. It grew into a very large operation. As things politically in England calmed down and they became more prominent, they started a, a huge shop in London, and they began stamping their furniture. It was a very rare thing to do in England to stamp furniture, or even label furniture. They stamped Gillow's Lancaster on some of their furniture. Could I pause you here and, and yeah. ask about uh, the practice of stamping furniture? In many of the decorative arts, artisans like to take credit for their work, mm -hmm. uh, put their mark on pieces. Of course, in silver, which is my field, that was legally required. That was legally required. But why would a firm like Chippendale not want to mark their pieces? Wouldn't that be free advertising for them? Um, it would be free advertising, but they didn't. Some people did. Some people did put their trade labels on furniture. But there's only there was Gillows, and then later on Holland and Son, who was another maker, but more into the 19th century. They stamped their furniture as well. It's a very rare thing in England. It was common, obviously, in France. You had to stamp your furniture in France. What you do see in England, and particularly on Gillows' furniture as well, is you see sometimes initials stamped on there. And the initials were nothing to do with the fact that it was made by Gillows. Those were the journeymen stamping their own initials on the furniture. And the reason they did that was Gillows became such a huge enterprise that they employed piece workers all over the country to make things. They would supply drawings for them to follow, and the peacemakers would make the work. They stamped their work so they could get paid for it. Ah, interesting. Yes. So that was almost like turning in your pay stub. Exactly right. So they could say, well, six pieces came from this person. We know how much we owe them. Curious Objects is brought to you by S.J. Shrubsold, dealers in antique silver and jewelry in New York. 
Where else can you buy a spoon that belonged to George Washington, Prince Albert's prized silver greyhound statue, and a precious necklace by the famed Giuliano? Shrubsole.com. That's S-H-R-U-B-S-O-L-E.com. And so is this Windsor chair stamped? This Windsor chair is not. Going back to Gillows, Gillows stayed in the family. It was in the family, in the Gillows family until the Regency period, around 1815, 1816, at which time they sold it to the managers of the company. The family sold it to the managers of the company. And it continued in production until late in the 19th century, about 1895. Really? When at which it was, point it was a 150-year-old company? It was a 150-year-old company, yes, or more. At which time it had declined and it was taken over by its competitor, who was called Waring. From that time on, they made reproduction furniture of prior periods. and Reproducing things that had previously been made by correct. the same company. Correct. We see this with Stickley, for example, in, in modern times. Exactly right. Unfortunately, Waring and Gillows set up furniture retailers in every town in England. So, And it was medium quality furniture for the middle class. And so when people saw the name Gillows, they didn't think of it as fine furniture at that time. And so it was not particularly popular to buy Gillows furniture, even if it was 200 years old. When Waring and Gillows finally went out of business, which was in the mid-50s, what was discovered was a trove of records. They kept records of everything, all of their customers, all of their invoices, all of the designs they made, vast inventory of design. Well, historians are now, there have been a number of books published recently about the Gillows' uh, history and furniture and design, and there's still a lot more work to be done. But this chair, an exact design for this chair, there are two designs for this chair that were found in the archives, one for about 1796 and one for, I think, 1805, 1806. No one outside of Gillows has published or has produced chairs of this particular shape, this particular design. Hence the attribution. Hence the attribution. And what's fascinating about it, when you go over it, it's got a sycamore seat, which means it must have been either painted or stained initially, because it's not an expensive piece of, of wood, and so it would need to have been painted at the time. If you were doing making a chair that was of fine quality wood, you would use an elm seat at least, and you would have had maybe elm in there, oak in there, um, beach to the, maybe beach to the legs, and it would have aged in a different way. What we have found out since doing some research on these is that Gillows, because they were such a entrepreneurial type of company, when you're sending ships to the Caribbean to buy wood, you don't want to send an empty ship to the Caribbean. You're sending things in that ship, unloading, and then bringing the wood back. What Gillows did was they shipped furniture. They were a major supplier to South America and North America through the Caribbean. Gillows used their bases in the Caribbean, mainly in, I believe, in Jamaica. And there are invoices in their records showing that they sent a lot of Windsor chairs to the Caribbean. Now, when they sent those, rather sensibly, they didn't send them as chairs. They sent them in component pieces. They had the pieces turned. They didn't paint them because if you painted it, it would get chipped. Mm -hmm. They sent them down, and the furniture was like the old Ikea then, I suppose. <laughs> they were sent down, and they were assembled in the Caribbean, and then they used agents in South America and the southern states to sell the furniture on. What I find interesting is that when these would have been painted, 
either they would have been paint, uh, stained or they would have been painted in green or some other color, red, white. And one must assume that the plenty of these can be found somewhere in America. They haven't been, because I don't think people know that these chairs are here, and they must be assumed, because of their rather odd shape as well, they may well be assumed to be American... American-made. American-made. Interesting. Particularly if they are painted, because, you know, people wouldn't necessarily look at the woods, they look at the paint. And they may have been painted in, in the U.S. or in... I mean, they supplied Argentina, they supplied all over the place. Um, That's so interesting. You know, of course, we, we have a similar problem sometimes in silver when unmarked English pieces are thought to have been made by American silversmiths. Absolutely. Which, in many cases, would seem to make them a lot more valuable. So there's Correct. a certain motivated reasoning for collectors to, to want their unmarked silver to be American rather than English. I like talking about this chair because it is... It's a Windsor chair, which is, you know, a middle-class piece of furniture is not a, an important piece of furniture. So no one is going to look at it with any great eye, generally, and try to work out all the history of it. Right. No, this was the IKEA of the 1790s. It was the IKEA of the 1790s, and it was also a normal piece of furniture. It was just, and would people have kept these? Probably not. You know, they may have been handed down, but they weren't of any... They weren't a great cabinet. They weren't a great chest of drawers, dining table. It was it was an ordinary country piece of furniture. But it has a fascinating history, and it is so distinctive in the way that it looks that it would be easy to recognize these in American furniture. I haven't seen them, but I'm now beginning to look. Mm-hmm. If listeners keep their eyes peeled, maybe they'll find. But some they examples. need to find they need to find the design source of this <laughs> of course. to know of what it looks like. But it is, it's, it's a wonderful chair. When I looked at this as well, this particular chair had been painted. The wood had been covered in or had been filled with a white lead filler. And underneath, to find out if a chair has ever been painted, you have to turn it upside down because no one, no one cleans. There's generally very little wear around the tops of the legs of the paint. And this one, it had green paint and at least two two layers of green paint on it. There was also a date of 1870, I think it was 1876 or 78, painted on the bottom, which was presumably when someone did a paint job on it. And it finally had a black varnish applied to it. And that black varnish would indicate that it was in England because black varnish was applied to a lot of furniture in the late Victorian times in deference to Queen Victoria after a Prince Albert died, and a lot of furniture was turned black and was painted or varnished in black as a memorial uh, to Prince Albert. This piece, it had been in England, certainly through the 19th century, but it has been to America. One is bound to be able to find these in America, and I suspect that they have been attributed as American furniture for some time because no one has really seen the design source until recently. What would that do to the value of a piece that had previously been thought to be of American manufacture? I don't know what it would do to the value of the piece. And once one knows the maker of something, it's always going to increase interest in Mm -hmm. the piece. Whether that increases the value, I don't know. Sometimes it's less important who in particular is responsible than just having a story about the piece to begin with. Well, I think every every piece of furniture has a story. I mean, it's just finding it. There's every piece of furniture you see, which is an antique, has been through so many owners, or maybe not, maybe just one, but generally have been through a number of owners. And just looking at the surface of the piece, the surface tells, tells a story mm-hmm. often with 
has it been touched? Has it not been touched? Has it been in one position in a house the whole time? When you see 17th century pieces, the first thing you always look at is the feet because you know that they were on a stone floor, that someone was mopping around them. So you expect to... Pushed in and pulled out and kicked and jostled. And, and you expect you expect to see stains to the feet at the very least and, or rot to the feet because of so much... Uh, water interaction. If you don't see that, then you get seriously worried about the piece. I think I don't mop my floors enough. <laughs> well, you can create the 18th century, or 17th century effect there, let's say. No, but I mean, that's, that's terribly important um, when, you're, when you're looking at a piece to see, does it have all the right indications of what it should have? Thanks to our sponsor for this episode, S.J. Shrubsole. Coincidentally, my employer, so for once I actually know what I'm talking about. Founded in London in 1912, the firm opened its New York City shop in 1936, and for generations has earned a reputation for expertise and integrity in buying and selling antique silver and jewelry. With clients from Groucho Marx to the Metropolitan Museum, Shrubsole has one of the finest collections of early English and American silver in the world, much of which is online at shrubsole.com. You'll find silver and jewelry for the dedicated collector, as well as unique gifts and splendid objects for your home. See it all at shrubsole.com. This idea of every piece of furniture having a story, would you say that's what draws you to the discipline? I think so, and I think, I think what draws me to the discipline is the quality of the workmanship that went into the piece originally, the change in design, the utilitarian functions of the piece, some, some of which don't exist anymore, I mean. But the way, the way people worked with their furniture, I mean, when you go back to the very earliest times, I mean, it was a table and a few chairs. The things you see most of, though, were the, um, I mean, chests, which were to keep valuables, to keep linens, and to be easy to move things around. When you were moving from the court to your country estate or to you were going out with the army and you would take a chest. There are thousands of chests still extant. And you do handle a good deal of campaign furniture and, and other campaign I objects, handle right? campaign furniture as well, which I like immensely. And I like that because it was the ingenuity of how do you, how do you create the same living conditions when you're going off to war in Africa or India, and you're representing the empire, how do you take all that same comfort uh, with you? And, you know, we talked before, not not on this, but we talked before about something called bright and buns. Yes. Which are fascinating things. You needed to have light. Wherever you were, you needed light. Therefore, you needed candle. Obviously, people take candlesticks with them. If you take candlesticks and they are packed in a boat, and then you strap them on the side of an elephant and you have people carrying up them up the side of a mountain, guess what? They get crushed. And so a super design came up, a very simple design called Brighton Bones. You could dismantle your candlesticks, place them in the bases, they screw together, and they were in such a shape that they couldn't be crushed. They look more or less like a donut. They look like a donut. In England in particular, because so many people were being sent to so many parts of the world, whether it be America, India, Australia, wherever, 
they wanted to take modern comforts with them because in most places that they were going to, there were no suppliers. So there were a number of companies in England that specialized, and Gillows actually took part of that market, as did many other companies, of supplying collapsible fold-up furniture. Chairs which could fold flat, dining tables which could seat 12 but would fold into a case, beds, every sort of, every sort of need that a gentleman or a lady would need in their travels in India or Australia could be fitted into a small packing case, basically, and could be reassembled on arrival. I have to say that strikes me as a particular Englishism, wanting to ride an elephant all day long and then sit down for a cup of tea at the end. Well, I, I, I know that, I know, I also know that Napoleon, for instance, had huge amounts of campaign uh-huh. furniture commissioned for his comfort when he was off conquering the rest of Europe. Okay, not only the English. Not only the English, Napoleon as well. I think some other people <laughs> as well. I, I think there is some American uh, campaign furniture that's still extant as well. Can I ask you a couple of questions about your own story? What was it that, you've talked a little bit about what motivates you about antique English furniture. Mm-hmm. How did you get into that? Did uh, you grow up surrounded by I antiques? Did. I did uh, when I lived in England. It was, a, it was in the house. I was never rich enough to be able to, be able to buy it as, as a young person. I actually, what I did was I went into the publishing industry initially, and I ended up, I had uh, a number of magazines related to the arts field, including a magazine about art and antiques. I had a magazine in Japan. I was constantly traveling to promote the magazine and find advertisers, and I was in this world so much, and I just loved touching the pieces and Mm. seeing the pieces. And it reminded me so much of, you know, what it was like at home and everything else. And one day I just decided that's what I want to do. It never occurred to me that, you know, it was really a business. (laughs) Uh I just later. this is a great thing to do. And I thought, of course one does this. What a wonderful way to end up in a job. Exactly. And you learn as you go along. And I learned the one thing I learned was don't buy on price, buy on quality, and always, always, always buy exactly what you love. The only times I've really made a mistake is when I look at something I think, I really could sell that soon, and I know people will want that. I don't like it myself, but I know I'll sell that, and I've still got a warehouse full of those (laughs) pieces. Well, it's hard to talk passionately about something that you aren't passionate about. That's right. And it's hard You're to sell something right. without yes. talking I'm sure someone else may be able to sell it, but not me. Right. Right. <laughs> Curious Objects is brought to you by S.J. Shrubsold, dealers in antique silver and jewelry in New York. Where else can you buy a spoon that belonged to George Washington, Prince Albert's prized silver greyhound statue, and a precious necklace by the famed Giuliano? Shrubsole.com. That's S-H-R-U-B-S-O-L-E.com. Well, now we are talking, our listeners are hearing us through the internet. The internet has had some serious ramifications for the way that art dealers and antique dealers do business. How has that changed your business over the last 10 or 20 years? I mean, it's more, I would say that it's more in the last, actually, five, five to seven years that it's had any real impact. Because that really has been the growth of the number of websites. I mean, the first thing is there is huge transparency now. Price transparency. Price transparency, and you can see virtually 
how many how many pieces there are of any, any type of item out there. What someone once said was rare. You just type that in now, and you find that oh, there are 127 of those being right. offered for sale around the world. Yeah. A good analogy with that is I remember many years ago, after Andy Warhol died, the thought was they're going to produce the catalogue resume of the Warhol work. And people were very worried about it because Warhol was incredibly prolific, second only to, I guess, Picasso in the 20th century. The worry was, if you knew that there were 126 similar paintings of Marilyn Monroe, the one you've got sitting on your wall doesn't seem Not quite so special. special. But when the when the catalogue resume was produced, it actually had the opposite effect because what it did was it gave people certainty, saying, "I know there's 126. You know, I know there's going to be no more coming coming on the market." So it gave people a certain amount of certainty, and it was interesting. I mean, you're always going to have the catalogue resumes out there for for an artist. It didn't damage his market. In fact. The Warhol market actually went up. Now, it can make it more difficult for a dealer to buy well. However, you have a much greater world of finding things. I mean, I, I have been able to find things in South Africa, in Australia, in southern Portugal, for God's sake, in South America. Furniture which maybe only 15 or 20 years ago, I would never have been able to find. But someone put a picture of it on the Internet. Someone put a picture on the Internet. Is an auction happening there or a person's? I see an image of someone's house in one of those places and I see a piece of furniture which I think I would like. I can go out and I can contact those people. So everyone can do that. There's more transparency in pricing, which is good and it's bad. Ultimately, what dealers do is they add value to this in the end. Because when a dealer will sell something, a dealer is always going to ensure that they've edited. I mean, I see hundreds and hundreds, and as you do, I see hundreds and hundreds of pieces all the time. I'm choosing one, two, or three out of, out of those hundreds, and they have to be the best. They have to be the best. So I'm not, I'm not offering people a wide range of quality. It's all of a similar quality. So the work has been done. That's, in the end, where we, we make our profits. We make our profits by providing that value and editing for the collector and for the customer. What is one mistake that collectors make that you would caution them to avoid? I think the biggest mistake a collector will make is purchasing without, without advice. For us, this is our business. We are recognized experts in certain areas. Collectors often will buy something because the price is right, they've been told a story, they like it, whatever it may be, but they don't think... and. They don't understand how to look at condition. They may not understand if it's a rare piece or if it's a common piece. Condition is terribly, terribly important. Many people do not know how to really judge that. And I think when a private person, a collector, buys, for instance, at an auction, they have the feeling that if they're buying at an auction, they must be getting a bargain. Nothing is furthest from the truth because they have to remember that they were the last person to bid if they bought it. That means they paid the highest price for it of anyone who was looking at that piece. And all it takes is two people making a mistake. Two people making a mistake. And that is not uncommon. Let's put it like that. Uh As you know and I know. Indeed. And so when a dealer drops out, there's a reason why the dealer is dropping out. That's a good thing to watch out for. It is indeed. Well, Michael Bashby, thank you so much for talking with me. Anything else you want to add? No, but I'd love to do this again. Fabulous. Okay.
that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Michael, and thanks to all of you for listening. As I said before, your ratings on iTunes are a huge help, as are your emails to podcast at themagazineantiques.com. Curious Objects is a podcast from the magazine Antiques. Today's episode was edited by Sammy Delati, and our music is by Trap Rabbit. I'm Ben Miller, and I'll catch you again next month.